When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Borida and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 174, Welsh Political Power Players. During the last decade of the reign of Elizabeth, the debate began about who would be the next heir. As we covered previously, it felt James VI of Scotland, grandson of Henry VII, as the most acceptable choice at a stage when Elizabeth herself would not name an heir. The beginning of the 17th century saw a number of powerful figures pass away, and so much of the old order went with them. The death of the second Earl of Pembroke took away much of the power that he had been gathering as he was both close to royalty as well as Welsh influence. William Herbert had, of course, been a key figure in Elizabeth's court and had worked in Wales as president of the Council in Wales in the Marches. His influence was so strong he was known as the Eye of all of Wales. His death left a power vacuum in Wales, which his son did not take up, as his own focus was primarily on the crown. In Herbert's place, other Welsh nobles would try and find a new lord to follow. This led some to Elizabeth's favorite, Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, during his failed uprising, which, once again, saw many on the wrong side of history. Essex's grievances were built on his disastrous Irish campaign, one in which he was supposed to defeat a famous Irish lord, but instead sought to negotiate peace as he failed to defeat him. Some Thing considered as a disgrace, obviously in English circles. Essex was always a bit of a hothead, and his tendency for treating the Queen with a level of disrespect, or at least without the measured, proper royal deference, got him into all sorts of problems. And in one particularly heated occasion during a Privy Council debate, on the problems of Ireland, the Queen reportedly cuffed an insolent Essex around the ear, him to half-draw his sword on her, something which would have been considered outrageous and, at the very least, could lead to jail time or summary execution for those kind of things. It's considered treasonous. The failure in Ireland was followed up by his massive financial losses from his position in Ireland being so contentious and costing so much money. So Essex, feeling the pinch from both power and wealth, decided to go against the court, which included the powerful principal secretary, Robert Cecil, who would later be named the first Earl of Salisbury. The Essex uprising against the Queen's Council lasted an incredibly short time, due in no small part to his being branded a traitor almost immediately 
which then took the wind out of his sails with his co-conspirators. Many didn't want to be perceived as being traitors. They only wanted to replace those advising the queen. It was always sort of perceived that the queen was being advised badly. Of course, the fact that she was a woman always played a part in this perception. But to be fair, it had happened with other kings. Typically, though, those were kings that were either very young, like at Henry III, or kings who were in situations where they weren't always mentally capable, such as Henry VI. According to historian John Davies, there were some Welsh nobility who thought the idea of bringing in James, on the other hand, would allow them to bring in an heir to be loyal to, because not only was this heir a heir to Henry VII as his grandson, but also an heir to the Welsh throne, in quotes, because he had this Welsh lineage, something that was important to them. It was also, of course, important to keep your influence and protection from the court and something you could do if you're being perceived as one who is supporting the new heir rather than someone who is perceived as being in the way of the new heir. James would be seen as a great uniter of the kingdoms of Scotland and England. The idea being is that it would become a united kingdom. Mm, You know, this would work perfectly with the Welsh popular myth of a king of Britain led by a descendant of the Welsh, Scottish, and English royalty. One of the strongest advocates for King James was William Morris, an MP for Carnarvonshire. Morris was a landholder in the north who had also moved up the ladder of official positions due to his inherited titles and his skill might be the wrong word, but his ability to move and shake with the right level of people. Keep in mind, in this era, there is no popular vote. Heck, there isn't even a vote as such. Most of the decisions that chose MPs came out of the local landholders, most of them fairly wealthy, deciding who they wanted amongst themselves and then agreeing to it, but not even voting on it, just basically declaring a winner. So you didn't have any sort of what we would consider to be a democracy by any stretch of the imagination. But nonetheless, he was appointed by his peers. He was considered at least trustworthy enough to represent them at Parliament. He was, from an early age, actively involved in county administration, holding offices in all three of the northwestern shires. His most difficult responsibility was as deputy lieutenant for the military in the defense of Carnarvonshire, something that he was seen as not being very good at, or at least not very active at, and was not trusted by the second Earl of Pembroke, of course, William Herbert. His colleagues, as deputy lieutenant for many years, was a disagreeable man by the name of John Wynne of Glyndwr, uh, whose support appears to have been instrumental in the election in 1593 to the Parliament. Morris was considered by many of his peers in Parliament to be unlawful, unruly, greedy, and in some cases corrupt. Now that's hilarious considering most of the Parliament, it could be argued, probably fell into those categories. But he also had the disturbing propensity of supporting the Welsh language and Welsh culture, which also kind of bothered them. So it's interesting that he was also the strongest proponent for claiming that James needed to be appointed to the throne. 
As we mentioned before, there were strong feelings for James, both positively and negatively in Wales. However, I expect that those within the lower classes would, not surprisingly, have a great deal of ambivalence as to who their master was in this era. According to historian Graham Jones, James fully appreciated the Welsh sympathies and support that they had given him and had confirmed offices and honors and favors upon a large number of Welshmen to effectively give them a little bit of a backslap for all their support. The Welsh gentry were seen as collaborators with the new government and, of course, because of that, won these honors and titles. The new king claimed that the successes of the Union of Wales and England was a strong example for doing the same with Scotland. He praised, in quotes, loyalty, faith, and obedience of his Welsh subjects and those MPs who, in quotes, served for the country of Wales, end quote. The Council of Wales was widely viewed as a symbol of Welsh autonomy, as well as the focus for continued unity under this union. The idea of common citizenship with cultural uniqueness would be a strong idea in both the Elizabethan and early Stuart reigns. This idea that Wales was the success story of how to merge these two cultures and as a symbol of colonial achievement, for lack of a better phrase, is somewhat startling in modern parlance, but the reality of it is that was the perception, you know, like Wales was now the success story. Look at how great it is. The fact that it still had all the same problems it had before, nonetheless. Likely, James's reason for this was in part to try and win similar unifications for his subjects in Scotland and Ireland, who both balked at the idea of unity for differing degrees and differing reasons. The appeal to the Welsh example for the gentry in Scotland would be built on a concept of, look at how much they gained and how much you would gain if you just did the same. Of course, forgetting the fact that Wales did this effectively at the end of a sword, they certainly didn't do it willingly or with great desire. It just kind of happens when you lose. The councils of Wales in the marches were still powerfully representative in Wales throughout this period, due in part to how key they were in enforcing the laws, taxation collection, and in effect giving some of the lesser nobility something to strive for in their local areas, as many men made their fortunes because of their influence that they obtained through these positions and within this structure of English control. So as we've mentioned before, this was a key point for the financial well-being of a lot of Welsh gentry at this time, because if you had the right shire that you were in charge of, you could always, you know, make an extra coin or three there. So something that was important to them, obviously. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. 
What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Welsh MPs now played a vital role in the establishment of royal authority and bringing stability in the communities they served. Welsh members of Parliament were established under the Union legislation since 1536. These members were now called from Wales as well. Initially, the MPs for Wales were seen as conservative, in quotes, in mindset, we're talking little c, not the big party c, and rarely were seen as pushers of any particular agenda. But by 1570, and specifically after 1571, this had changed. For the next 30 or so years, they became more active in the workings of Parliament, and up to 30 of them had worked in various committees and various positions within the Parliament. This created an important connection to London, allowing even more social movement and political influence to flow from Wales into the capital. Keep in mind that unlike Scotland, which had a capital, or Ireland, which had a capital, Wales had never really had a united capital, thus didn't have a capital for people to go back to. So it was easier for them to centralize authority to London because of that. The local influence, combined with common insight and opinions, began to see more and more of the Welsh MPs as a value in acting in concert, in other words, working together, there was a tendency for the Welsh MPs to vote and act as a group in the Commons on questions of relevance to Wales, especially over financial matters such as the imposition of an unpopular tax, like the ones that would happen over the years to various members of the Welsh gentry. These would obviously be especially near and dear to those gentry members. The application of royal right to purveyance, as an example, is a compulsory purchase by the king's purveyors of Welsh cattle at what amounted to a base rate price. In other words, you were getting 
effectively bottom dollar for your cattle because it was the government buying it, something that was loathed by many and led to a number of protests from local counties where these ranchers held sway. The power of the parliament during this period continued to rise in various groups and subgroups, and the crown continued to battle over who had control of what in the country. Monarchs from the beginning had fought lords over how much they could raise funds, fight wars, and generally do what they wanted, something which had never been a question in most of Europe, as in France and most of the rest of the continental kings and queens, they became more and more powerful, controlling more and more, while in England and Wales, that was the opposite and this led directly to the confrontation that would build the structures of the English Civil War due to the battles between both sides on how to, first of all, hold each other to account, but second of all, over who would control the purse strings of the government. Obviously, this had been something of an issue since King John signed the Magna Carta, and both lords and now members of parliament were basically bickering with the government almost constantly, it will lead both to the Civil War and then the Glorious Revolution in 1688, which will eventually lead to the constitutional monarchy we deal with today because so much of this balance had been swung back to the Parliament. Few could doubt that the Parliament and the courts were always at odds and the finances were key to much of this issue. If we remember back to the episodes going as far back as referencing Henry III, in the 12th century, the lords maintained strict financial controls on him and his heir, Edward I, likely creating some of the circumstances that led to the rise of Llewellyn the Great as Prince of Wales, because, of course, holding on to the purse strings suited some of the allies of Llewellyn, and particularly reined in the expenses and the military ability of the government to enforce their will on the Welsh. Also, parliamentary confrontations led directly to Owen Glyndwr and the eventual tripartite agreement that had rocked Henry IV. Parliamentary issues ultimately became a source of anger, confusion, and growing resentment into the reign of James I and his successors. In fact, the Stuart reign is littered with these confrontations. As London became more and more a center for the political movers and shakers in Wales and became influential on driving some of the dysphoria, there was also those that saw their fortune being made there. The city was becoming a central point for England and had been for a while, pretty much, was now becoming the central point of all of the British Isles because of how much influence it was now wielding. James himself had decided long ago that he was not going to leave once he got there, having perceived the financial reward for living there to be much higher and much more prestigious. And so thus, as soon as his family had moved, that pretty much ended his reign in Scotland as king and effectively made him sort of a caretaker king to Scotland. Even though they were effectively united, the reality was is that he was still James the Sixth in Scotland, and the fact that he was not taking any real notice of what was going on there physically certainly must have 
made his subjects quite annoyed with him. But in the meantime, the Welsh who had moved to London and had moved there from reasons that were not necessarily political began to establish businesses and work within the London communities. These Welsh Londoners became important in sending money back home. They began to feel either religiously or financially responsible towards their home, and a sense of duty drove them to begin to finance education reforms, clothing for poor children, setting up schools and workhouses, and attempting to circulate Bibles and devotional works. It was they who set up the print shops that allowed the Welsh language material to be published for the first time, as London was the only place that this could be done en masse. And so, therefore, you had this complete reestablishment of Welsh culture being based now, instead of out of Wales, being actually based out of London and being shipped back to Wales, something that, again, would probably continue for many, many years to come. At the same time, other religious works were now being published and translated other than the Bible and the prayer books, as various denominations began to see how influential this was, and trying to make a dent into a population which largely had remained impervious to anybody outside of either Catholic or Anglican position. So, printing in Welsh and having Welsh speakers who could actually speak to the population and actually get them to see their point of view had now become very important. So you end up with various Puritan groups, for example, publishing different authors' work to try and influence the population. The Puritans had been very busy in trying to influence Wales. I think it was one of the things that probably drove them nuts is the fact that they were struggling so much to make any headway in Wales, and it was all very slow. But, as pointed out a few episodes ago, this is in part because of the different nature of the place and the fact that it was mostly rural, mostly poor, and didn't have the same links to what was going on in England. There wasn't the intelligentsia to kind of represent them in the way that they did in England. There wasn't the same sense of connection to the gentry class or to the to the landholder class. So there wasn't those kind of connections. And so a few merchants began to use their religious fervor and their philanthropy to try and influence all of this stuff, to try and get through to the traditional Welsh rural movement just what they were talking about. But radicalism was difficult to come by in religion in Wales. Though these merchants did try and they did raise funds in fact, £7,000, to be exact, in 1633, was set aside to purchase seats for Puritan ministers in churches along the Welsh borders. But, in the end, that expense went for nothing. Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud, a supporter of Charles I, ensured that the Welshmen did not succeed in putting their people onto these various seats and put a kibosh on the whole thing. Still, as you can imagine, politics in this period was fraught with a great deal of religious division. Catholics, Anglicans, Calvinists, and Methodists all worked within political circles to influence the state of England 
and by extension, the Welsh state. As merchants, adventurers, and religious zealots began to flee the British Isles to seek land, freedom, or wealth in the New World, with some mixed results, to be honest, there were those who sought to change at home and continued to feel that the monarch was always one step away from Catholicism, now seen at the height of opposition in Protestant England. In the monarchy, the transition of James to King Charles led to more conflict and anger. Few doubted that Charles secretly supported Catholicism, and his marriage to a French princess and a secret note to the King of France saying that he would actually support the Catholics did him no favors, and suspicion and conspiracy abounded. If James played at the knife edge reasonably well, Charles was proving to be a terrible politician, and the problem would lead to the destructive war that would cost him his life. But we'll talk about that more in future episodes, and we'll certainly go on a bit about it at that point. Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much, and uh, I appreciate it. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or you can also talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you'd like to help the podcast out, help us finance the purchase of books and material, um, you can certainly do that at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.